0: Wow. You guys put on your seatbelts for this one. We are going to talk about all of the good things. I am interviewing Holly Hayes, who found herself homeless and addicted at the age of 21. Sisson has created this incredible ministry for women who are trafficked because that's a little bit of her story. So we're going to talk about all the things, as you can imagine, on this episode, but it is not too trigger warning-ish. Don't worry. And Mostly what I love about this episode is a shame-free discussion on sex. I, I just love the grace around our conversation. Um, Yeah, we're just going to get into it. Hey, my name is Katie Bulmer. I was your typical heartbroken and hungover sorority girl who looked for love in boys, Bacardi, and did I mention boys? After the breakup that broke me, I met the only man who can truly fulfill me. His name is Jesus. Shortly after that, I met my husband, the best example I have met of Jesus on this earth. Today, I have never been more sure I am right where I'm supposed to be on a mission to help today's young women find their life calling, stop dating dirtbags, and basically just be who I needed when I was younger. I've been called a big sis, an adopted mom, or my favorite title, a cool aunt. But however you think of me, get ready to be challenged and encouraged. This is the Truth For Your 20s podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Truth For Your 20s podcast. My name is Katie, and I'm your host for today. We have with me a new guest. Her name is Holly Hayes. This is going to be a fascinating interview. I'm so excited. But Holly was rescued out of a life of trauma, and from that was born the Sanctuary Project in her award-winning book, From Basement to Sanctuary, and a jewelry line, too. Holly speaks in jails, churches, recovery communities, and conferences all over the globe. And now this podcast too. I'm so excited. Welcome to the podcast, Holly. Well, thank you so much for having me, Katie. This is so fun to be here. Yes. Okay. You have quite a story, my friend. So I'm sure you told it a million times, but I would just kind of love to hear a little background about you and how you got to do what you're doing today. Of course. Well, I'm honored to be on a truth for your twenties
1: podcast because I basically failed at mine or at least the <laughs> my early twenties. But I, so I grew up in a good family, but had some, uh, there was some abuse in my childhood and, and then had an, uh, my parents got divorced when I was in my teenage years, which that was fun. I'm sure you can imagine with like, oh, yeah. you know, everything, everything that those years are. And then on top of that, some family trauma and so I ended up falling into addiction at a really young age. And I think this is maybe more common than we talk about, but it started with high school keg parties for me. And it, it pretty quickly progressed to, you know, to using drugs and drinking daily. So I was drinking and using daily by the time I was 15 and dropped out of wow. high school at 16. At 18, I found myself in and out of jail and started selling drugs. That was my first job <laughs> before Sanctuary Project. <laughs> Everything I need to know about life, I learned from selling drugs in, at 18. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've seen that
0: on a poster, on motivational poster yeah, somewhere.
1: Yeah. I think in, in most high school, you know, counseling, <laughs> <laughs> most high school counselors have that poster on their wall, right? <laughs> but I, um, yeah, so started getting arrested all the time, really found myself... And you're how old in, at this point? Like, at this I point, I was teenager. 18. So yeah, wow. young teenager and was started getting into abusive relationships. That was really what I was most comfortable in because... Them treating me the way that I felt about myself really matched what was going on internally for me. And then at 19, I met my trafficker. And, and that relationship started off as you know what I thought was love. And you know he was the most charismatic figure I'd ever met. And, uh, and then the relationship quickly became abusive and then became exploitive. So I did not know at the time that I was being trafficked. I would not have been able to put that label on it. I thought he was my boyfriend. I thought he was helping me out. I thought I was a sex worker and I thought that that was empowering. And and those are all the sort of defense mechanisms and coping mechanisms I had at that time. And so it wasn't until many years later that I learned the definition of trafficking is committing a commercial sex act through force, fraud, or coercion. And all three of those things were going on in that relationship, but I wouldn't have been able to articulate that at the time. What I did know was that I was struggling with addiction and that the relationship was violent and that I wanted out. And so I kept getting drunk and high and not showing up for the jobs he was lining up for me and ended up homeless. And so at the age of twenty one, I was homeless and addicted and completely lost and and just broken in every way. Had even failed at had failed at being trafficked, which is pretty much the lowest you can go in society. But but I said my first prayer on the floor of a public bathroom. I just said, God help me. And that night, I ended up meeting someone who got me into a recovery program. So um, I've been wow. sober since that day. I got sober at the age of 21. And really, that was the the beginning of this whole new life that, that I get to live today. And a life of impact, a life of you know, mentoring other girls and, and working with other women out of really similar stories.
0: Wow. So I think this is so powerful because I know a lot of times we think of trafficking as like, out in another city and another family, like it's it's over there. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. But it is not very much over there. It is very much right here. So I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit. And like, how did you grow up and stuff like that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a good home and a good family in, in the San Francisco Bay area. Both my parents were professors. I was a good student. I excelled in Musical theater and dance. And so I was actually at a musical theater conservatory at the time that this was happening. I was at a top musical theater conservatory in Boston, Massachusetts. So I, from the outside, I did not look like all of this was going on. And I think it's important for people to understand that sometimes people will say, like, I'd love to see a side by side picture of, you know, who you were before and who you are now. And I think you'd be shocked that I did not look much different. You know, I looked like a college student. I remember I would steal clothes from Neiman Marcus and You know, I was I was trying to I was trying to look good and and have it all together on the outside through all of this. And no one would have known. You know, in fact now that I'm sharing my story more openly and publicly, a lot of people I grew up with and went to college with will reach out to me and be like, I can't believe this was going on when I knew you and they can believe it too, because they know my trafficker. (laughs) And so they're like, I mean, I know who it was, but you know, and so it's really interesting because I think we do have this picture that if a girl's being trafficked, she's gonna have You know, visible bruises all over her body. She's going to be trapped in a hotel room. She's going to, you know, she's going to be crying out for help with everyone she meets. And the reality is, I was shame filled and I was hiding it. And I was trying to live a really normal looking life. And that, you know, people who came in contact with me, the only people that would have been able to ask the right questions were doctors, you know, medical professionals when I was getting multiple abortions. But that's a place that questions should have been asked. And then um, the police, I was getting arrested all the time and never had, never had a police officer ask me if I was in an abusive or violent or exploitive relationship. But both of those people would have had some insight into what was going on in my life where my family wouldn't have known, my friends maybe wouldn't have known, really no one would have known except those professionals that were intervening.
0: Wow. I have so many questions. (laughs) So do you think that your parents had any idea? Were you still living at, you weren't living at home at this time? Is that Right. No, I wasn't. Um,
1: you know, my parents had done kind of the tough love thing, which I really mm-hmm. respect them for. It's one of the hardest things a parent can do. And and something I encourage parents to do if they're, if they have a child struggling with addiction, they had cut me off and I'm so glad they did because it enabled me to hit bottom at a younger age. And so they were still around somewhat in my life, but they were still in California. And I was in Boston, Massachusetts. I was lying to them a lot. I remember my dad got this call from someone that I was in school with who was very concerned about me and was like, Hey, she's on drugs. Um, I was subletting an apartment that he, his name was the, on the lease of. And I stopped paying rent and got evicted, which is how I ended up living with my trafficker. And, and he had reached out to my dad and was like, Hey, she's a mess. Like she, And she's really hurt me. She got me evicted. And my dad was like, I got the craziest phone call from someone who was making up all kinds of lies about you. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, sounds wow. crazy. Yeah, lots <laughs> of lies. <laughs> when really everything he was saying was true, it's spot on. And, and he was trying to actually get my parents to intervene and help. When, uh, but they were so blinded. And I think as a parent, it's really easy to be blinded. You just wouldn't expect that your little girl would be going through all of that, right? No, one, no parent would want to think that.
0: Yeah, and I think that that speaks volumes when you talk about people assume they're going to see this, you know, kid with eyeliner rubbing down her face and like cracked yes. out and like you know, but you're like, no, yeah. I I looked the part of the quote well together girl. And meanwhile, you know, eyeliner you're hiding in place. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay, so talk to me about you know the bathroom floor and you hit this like obviously I'm sure this was a gradual rock bottom and you know you don't get there in a day, but coming to that moment and then the recovery and all of that.
1: Yeah. You know, a lot of times when I tell my story, I'm like, so there was this bathroom floor and I cried out to God and then I got sober and then now, you know, and then I lived happily ever after. But, you know, I think that's not, that's not my truth. That's not the whole story. And, and so, you know, I, because this is a truth for your twenties podcast, I think to dive into what my twenties looked like as someone new in recovery, it was you know, now I'm 20 years out. I'm 41 right now. So, so that gives some context of, you know, how long that recovery journey took, because I feel like I'm finally healed and living my best life now. But my twenties were a mess, Katie. Oh my gosh. Like I, I had, there's this old adage that says, what do you get when you take a drunken horse thief and you get him sober? And the answer is a horse thief, <laughs> because um, everything about my character was still living in this you know in, in this addiction and in this this lifestyle that I'd grown accustomed to. So I was still stealing clothes, I was still manipulating, I was still using sex to, to try to like fill some hole in my identity or sense of self-worth. I mean, I ended up in AA in the 12-step recovery community and I swear I slept with every single person in that like young young group you, like you know, young people's meeting community. I I just was acting out in every single other way. And so despite the fact that the addiction was kind of miraculously removed from me and I did get away from my trafficker, I was still, you know, that same kind of broken girl with all kinds of childhood trauma. And now all the trauma i I'd, I'd heaped on that from years of getting arrested and, and being a sex worker and all of these, you know, all of these additional traumas that i would heaped on it. And I didn't even know where to begin to find healing. Um, I did start counseling early on in, in that journey. And I remember my counselor sort of, who did a lot of behavior modification sort of asking me to cast this vision for the woman I would wanna be at, you know, at some point in my life. What did she dress like? What did she look like? What did she act like? How did she behave in the world? What kind of friendships did she have? What kind of relationships did she have? And that was the beginning for me was like kind of casting a vision of like, I know I'm not who I want to be, but where, where do I want to go? Who do I want to be? You know, when I get to the end of my 20s, when I turn 30, when I turn 40, who do I want to be? What do I want my life to look like? How do I want to dress? How do I want to behave in the world? And I think casting that vision for myself really gave me something to strive for, but it was a long journey. And, you know, my first job coming out, you know, coming out into recovery, I got all my first jobs in in the recovery community. But one of them was shining shoes, there was a shoe shine stand that employed people who were new in recovery. And I learned to shine shoes. And it was a trade that I could do without, um, at that point, I dropped out of high school, and I had a degree in musical theater and <laughs> didn't have a lot of like, skills or tools for living. And, And so I started training shoes. And I think it was in some ways the best job I ever had because I, two things, one, I had this safe living place. I had a place where I could cry at work, where my bosses understood because they were in recovery a long time. And, and my, all my coworkers understood because they were having hard days too. And then all day long, I would make beautiful things all day long. These shoes would come in dirty and messy and cracked. And I got to make them beautiful. And so all day long, my neural pathways were being wired from I'm this total screw up to I'm someone who can make things beautiful. I'm someone who can make things beautiful. I'm someone who can make things beautiful. And I think that there was just such a, a transformation that happened to me in that time. And, and then I ended up getting uh, my first job in real estate during that time from someone whose shoes I shined. In. And that was really the start of what most of my career was in kind of combination of working in musical theater and working in real estate. And so, so much self-esteem and, and self-worth and identity got built in that time. And when I look back on it, it was so transformational. And so now today with what I do at Sanctuary Project, it's really based on what I learned there and what I experienced there at that, at that little shine stand in my early 20s.
0: I'm obsessed with this shine story. <laughs> because first of all, your perspective is just beautiful. I'm sure there were other people working alongside of you like, I got shiny stink shoes, and this is the worst. <laughs> but you're like, I am making things beautiful. I just feel like that. I don't know if that is just like your amazing personality, or God, or a little bit of both. But that sounds transformational, and it and it didn't have to be. It's just the way you choose to see it, you know. Yeah, That's, I, uh, and you're right.
1: I mean, I do think it's a perspective thing. It's like either you see yourself as someone who's kind of at the bottom of society, like working a shoeshine stand. Or you can see it as like, well, what do I actually get to do all day long? What does my work look like, you know? And what and what am I contributing to the world? And and I think you're right that um, it was divine revelation at that time, and there was this sense that what was happening there was more than just shining shoes. It was more than just you know getting getting cash to get through the day. It was actually um,
0: a beautiful picture of, of all God had for. I feel like we could do a whole podcast episode on just that. I'm one of my friends. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because I remember one of my friends, she's one of four children, and she always tells the story of when she was growing up, her, she was homeschooled and her mom, you know, was like pulling her hair out with all these kids. And at 10 AM, all the kids would go outside, she would lock the door, it would be her mom's like, This is my time, and then she'd come out at 10 30 and have them a snack. Well, my friend remembers it of and my mom was inside preparing this beautiful snack for us. And I was always that's so excited nice. of what she brought. And it was just, <laughs> I look forward to 1030. But her brother remembers it of my mom locked us out. And he wished she wouldn't let us come inside. Aww. And she was so mean.
1: <laughs> you know, it's the awesome. same
0: story. And it really is. Yeah, it's really powerful because it's up to us to to how we see it. And that mm-hmm. that's huge. <laughs> I love that. Oh actually, gosh, I actually like that as an idea
1: for parenting. That sounds like a parenting hack. I have a two-year-old and I'm like, wait. I love this idea. Can I lock her out and like make a snack? <laughs>
0: <laughs> as long as you make sure she sees the highlight reel, right? right like As part. long as she sees it as mom was preparing this beautiful thing for me. <laughs> yes, totally. Oh my gosh. That's so powerful. Okay. So you obviously had this beautiful perspective. You had this messy, so to speak, teens and twenties, and eventually started this thing called sanctuary project and a jewelry line and you're speaking in jails and worldwide what did that look like cuz that sounds fascinating
1: you know it was not an overnight thing and it, and one of the Wait, things not? I like
0: to <laughs> <laughs> one of the things i like to remind all the girls
1: who come into sanctuary project about because a lot of times girls will come in and they'll be like oh my gosh like my life has been so radically changed i want to do what you do i want to share my story i want to you know i want to speak in the jails i want to talk about it i want to I want to build a nonprofit. And I'm like, oh, girl, (laughs) give it some time. You know, I didn't start sharing my story publicly until I was about 15 or 16 years out. And I say that because I think that there's a lot of pressure in our world to share our testimonies and our transformation stories and our victories a little too soon. And, you know, I think had I started sharing my story, even in my early 30s, the story wasn't done yet. And not that it's done today, but but in in most areas there I've seen the redemption, I've seen the the completion and I've seen the healing, the transformation. And that wasn't true five years after I came out. That wasn't true ten years even after I came out. It started to become true in kind of years twelve through thirteen, but those were the years that I really spent prepping to start sharing it publicly. And for me a lot of that was processing what are the pieces of my story that are going to be helpful for people? And, you know, I think my story has a lot of pieces to it, you know, and I could write a whole book on selling drugs. I could write a whole book on shining shoes. I could write a whole book on, yeah. you know, on sexual identity and what it was like to step into sexual purity after so many years of sexual exploitation. But I think really trying to assess like, you know, most of the speaking I do is is in the church or in faith-based communities and, and really getting familiar with, with the church and with, and with what are the holes around What are the holes that, that people are, where, where is there a missing voice and where can my story be helpful in the church has been, has been one of the things I've learned over that time. And, and I started to learn too, that there was a lot of misinformation about trafficking and that there was a need for someone to speak into what it actually looks like here in America. And so, yeah, it's been a long process. It's been a journey. And, you know, when people ask me, how do i open up and start sharing my story i like to say you know go into that inner place first with god and figure out what your story is and what in it is going to is going to be useful and is going to build the body of christ or is going to build whatever community you're in if you're in a recovery community what is the thing that's going to most encourage those around you and so you know today i think what i realized was that my story was was most useful in two places one women who are at their bottom, which a lot of times is in jail. It's a great place to hit bottom. And it's a place where they're often separated from their addiction and their trafficker. So I can intervene in a really pivotal moment and have the most impact. And then the other place that's most useful has been in the church with women who have lived a life completely opposite of mine and have so many preconceived notions about what a life like mine would look like, feel like, how it would impact my personality or the way I look. And to be able to break all those stereotypes and be like, nope, like I came from a good family. Nope. I didn't look like a meth addict even though I was. Nope. I didn't look like I was being trafficked. And just to break those stereotypes and and say, you know, this is what it actually can look like. And it's far closer to you than you even realize. It's probably happening in your sorority. It's probably happening in your in your hometown. It's probably happening around you in really in in subtle ways, in ways that you wouldn't recognize. And so that's been so that's been so fulfilling, I think, to be able to uh, share my story and share the truth of what God's done in my life uh, with that community as well. This is,
0: I have, I'm just like, Oh my gosh, this is so fascinating. Yeah. I've heard it said, we need to speak from our scars, not our wounds. And I think that that's interesting that you had in that healing process because yeah, you walk through a lot. And I think that that's true. I see people teaching um, from their wounds and it's, not pretty. <laughs> it's uncomfortable,
1: right? I mean, yes. Yeah, like I don't want to see you g- gaping that wound open and crying and pouring it all out. I mean, that's work that needs to happen in in very safe communities. It needs to happen in with in therapeutic communities. It needs to yeah. happen with close friends and confidants. And yeah, and then when it's when it's all healed up and and when there's a little scar and you can, you know, just like Jesus did raise your hands and say, you know, touch the scars and you know, see see what God has done rather than like here's the messy middle of it and here's, you know, and here's how I'm feeling in the midst of it. It's there's a different level of help we have when we're coming from that from that scarred place rather than that wounded place.
0: Yeah, I think that it also does the favor you're helping your people out much more. Like people get so excited, Oh my gosh, I'm a transformation person, I wanna share and that's good and that's important. But you're doing more favors and helping more people once you've healed the wounds. So yeah. Yes. hundred percent. Let's talk about sex. <laughs> yeah. You have such a powerful story. I oh got so excited and... when you said that <laughs> just
1: because I, like Ooh. no one ever said no one ever says that Katie, no one in the church. Oh, really? I mean, I'm assuming you're in the church. Are you a Christian? I am. And we talk about that a lot on this podcast. Awesome. Amen. Good. Good. Good because it's like not talked about enough in the church. Let's talk about sex. I agree. What do you want to talk okay. About? Let's talk about
0: sex. <laughs> I mean, you have such a story of you know, not understanding it, abusing it, being used and using others. And, you know, and now you're married, right. And have this new way of looking at sex. Like I I need to hear, I'm sure that was a journey. And there's so many things unwell represented. That's not the right English. There's so many things cheapened (laughs) and taken Yes, Yeah. (laughs) Sex is a beautiful gift that our society is confusing people to say the least. And I know you have a journey and I want to hear more about it.
1: Yeah. Thank you. You're right. It's a beautiful gift. I recognize that from a really young age and you know, I have no shame around sex and I, this is going to sound shocking. I never have. And here's why I did not grow up in Christian culture. I did not grow up in y'all's purity culture. (laughs) I didn't grow up in a shame culture. I remember the talks I had about sex growing up where my parents told us it's a beautiful thing. I remember my mom telling me, it's better when you love the person, you know, but it wasn't, there was never any, like, I never got one negative message about sex in my entire life. I'm just going to say that not one negative message and amen. Right. I mean, praise God. That's great. And however, here's what that looks like. Right. So I so I became sexually active. I obviously had a subconscious sexual wound from I was sexually abused as a child. But you know, there's two reactions you can have to that sexual wounding. One is that you become very shut down about sex, fearful about sex, confused, and don't want it at all, right? The other is that be, you become extremely promiscuous because essentially your body becomes sexualized very young. And so that was the, that was what happened to me. I actually became very promiscuous. My body was sexualized very young. I discovered masturbation at age seven and loved it and was like, this is awesome. This feels so good, you know? Um, And so, but, and, and again, had no shame, did not know that was shameful, just thought this feels good. And, and so when I became sexually active, I, I, I became sexually active at 14 and was in sexual relationships nonstop from 14 until when I was baptized and came to Christ when I was either 29 or 30. I can't remember the year right now, but um, but that's when I actually like developed like I am in relationship with Christ, I am baptized, I am a Christian and I am committing to sexual purity. And so through that time, I was in nonstop sexual relationships. And I'm gonna say something that I have learned is uncomfortable for some Christians to hear. I loved sex. I loved it. I loved connecting with other people. I loved that feeling of like, of just being, of opening myself and being naked and unashamed, right? And because I had no shame and didn't know that sex belonged in the context of marriage, it just felt good. It did. And I want people to hear that because I think that there's a demonization of sex that happens in specifically in, in Christian community where there's all these stories of like, I had sex before marriage and it was this shame and it was painful and it was awful. And i wish I'd never done it. And, but God has redeemed me, praise Jesus. Right. And I can be made new. And I don't, for me, that's not the whole story. It's more complex than that because I think, because I didn't have the context of this is a shameful thing. I actually just enjoyed it. Now that doesn't mean it wasn't harming my soul, but I didn't know that. I didn't feel that. I didn't live in that. What did happen was that I made it my identity, that it became an idol for me, and then you know as as that became more and more of an idol, it did lead to dangerous and dark places and so, in one breath, I know I'm saying, I hate that the church demonizes sex, but I am also going to say that I think the enemy does use sex to make his his world very appealing right and and he never comes in like. You know, like, and you know, like, he never comes in with like horns and it's like, oh, this is terrible, but I want it. Like, no, it actually feels good. And therefore, I want it. And then I make it the ultimate good. And that's when it starts to lead to destruction and death. And so for me, that, you know, that promiscuity, like that sexual connection felt fun Mm -hmm. for a long time. And then it was fun, but there were consequences. And I was getting pregnant and having to have abortions. And I was getting into abusive relationships and not understanding why I was staying, but really my, my sexual relationship with them was making me feel like we were very committed to each other and I needed to be committed and stay even though he was dangerous. And, and then it you know, ultimately led to the highest form of evil and exploitation because I had spent so much of my life being promiscuous that when it was presented to me that this man could sell me and say, you know, it, basically what, it, what happened was when he told me that I could be sold and that men would pay for me, he was actually saying, your sexuality has value. And that was a new message for me because I'd given it away and it had, had no value. And all of a sudden this, this man came in and said, you have value and, and men would pay for it, your sexuality and men would, men would really find you very valuable. So it kind of hit this, this thing in me that really felt true of like my sexuality has value. And so, you know, to then have that value perverted to the highest degree, it did become quite evil in my life and it did become... Very destructive in my life, and so this ultimately very good thing, when taken by the enemy and used out of context, does become evil. But that doesn't make sex bad, right? Um, right? Sex is designed to be beautiful, and it's designed. It is good. It is inherently good. And so I say all of that to say I I deeply desire that women in the church, that men in the church, would see sex as good. And and I am. I did step into a season of sexual purity, so I spent. Too many years, seven years in sexual purity and abstinence and waiting for marriage to have sex. And, and what happened in that time, you know, there's a lot of kind of like jabs coming out on, on purity culture and like, you know, and that it's, you know, because it's so linked to shame, right? And it's so right. linked to you have to do this because it, your identity is linked to it and you're, you've lost your value if you have sex outside of marriage. And those weren't the messages I went into it with. For me, I really went into it with this desire for healing and a desire to actually take the power back and feel truly empowered in my sexuality. And for me, that meant I get to choose when I give myself to someone. And I'm so valuable that a man doesn't have to just pay for me. He has to buy me a ring and he has to stand in front of the altar (sighs) and commit to a lifetime with me in order to get this. You know, I mean, that was like, for me, it was the ultimate empowering act. And so to have had my sexuality Exploited to step into that level of empowerment was so beautiful and felt so radical and felt so healing. And I, you know, and I still see it that way today. And I want other women who are single to see it that way. This is the most empowering thing you can do in a world that says your sexuality is your value to say, yeah, it is. Yep. And I am so valuable that a man has to buy me a big old diamond ring, get down on one knee, ask my dad for permission walk down the aisle, stand in front of God and everyone and commit to love me for the rest of my life before they're going to get that from me because that's how valuable it is. And what an empowering thing, right? Like when the world says it's empowering to sleep around, we're saying,
0: actually, it's empowering to like get it all committed before you do that. Yes. Hey, did you know I offer online mentoring? My most popular option is booking a one-time 30-minute chat. I call it Ask Me Anything. And if you want to continue from there, I also offer a month of mentoring. I have found a lot of girls also prefer the pre-recorded option, so I have two options there. I have a mini course, a short, easy to digest called Make a Dating Plan. This dives deeper into something I talk about very often, about making a plan, dating with intention. And then I have a more in-depth course walking you through heartbreak, how to heal from that, and then how to get relationship healthy. Go give me a follow on Instagram at Katie Bulmer Life, and you'll find all the info you need at the LinkedIn profile for online mentoring. That's Katie Bulmer Life on Instagram and online mentoring at the LinkedIn profile. I don't know if you're like me, but it seems like skincare is either super expensive or it just doesn't work. But I recently discovered Good Molecules. It's skincare that's not expensive and it's not complicated. It's good for you. It has like all natural ingredients. It's good for the planet and good for your wallet. And it actually does what it's supposed to do. I've definitely noticed a difference in my skin while using it. Click on the link under this episode and notice a difference in your skin as well with Good Molecules love everything you said to the 10th degree. We're the same age. I didn't grow up in purity culture either. I just didn't grow up in church. So I do recognize that that has been confusing, at at least damaging, you know, but yes, sex is good. Let's remember that it's good because the church isn't talking about that or at least not enough. And everything you just said needs to be on a billboard. It'd be a very big billboard, (laughs) but it's so good.
1: It was I, I recorded a solo podcast episode on it and had my sweet assistant who grew up in the church listen to it. She's in her, her mid-20s and she's still single. And I was like, listen to this and tell me if it's like uncomfortable for you. And she was like, it was really hard to get through. Because I think when you have grown up in that culture, to talk about sex like, hey, it's really good is very countercultural, right? It's like, what's more comfortable is to think sex is bad. Sex is bad. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't even think about it. Certainly don't touch yourself and think about it. Like, you know, just like stay away from it. Run, run, run until you're married and your wedding night and then hit go
0: and be sexy and wonderful and amazing. Which, how's that going, church? Exactly. <laughs> how many, yeah. I heard someone say that instead of calling it a purity ring, called a value ring because you always oh, I have love value. That. Yeah. Isn't yeah, that good?
1: And how sad so, to it, like keep in your value, to not know your value yeah. and to sell it for like a bowl of soup, right? To sell it for like, you know, to sell it for too little. Right. Right. And that's like, and I love that of valuing. That is such a beautiful picture because to teach them that, that they have that ultimate value, that's empowering instead of shameful. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay.
0: <laughs> so you walk through this confusion of sex to say the least this confusion of your worth, um, your body, how it's used. And now teach other women who have been through similar things. I want you to talk to me about like, Owning your femininity, femininity. Yeah. Wow, I'm killing uh, articulation today. After it has been exploited, what does that look like?
1: You know, one of my favorite things about Sanctuary Project is that when the women come in, almost a hundred percent of the time, they say, "Well, I'm not really a girly girl. I'm not really into jewelry. I, you know, I'm really more of like a tomboy." And and then slowly, after they've been working for us for a little while, they'll be like, "Well, I do like this one necklace. I guess those earrings are kind of pretty." And I'll watch them like buy their first piece of Sanctuary Project and start wearing it to work, and then they'll buy their second piece and then and then they'll start dressing a little more feminine and and then they're starting to wear makeup and do their hair. And I say all of that to say because we have been exploited, we've gotten this message that our sexuality is not safe and that us being feminine is not safe. And as trauma survivors, we tend to shut down our sexuality. And we shut down our femininity because we're afraid. We're afraid of men looking at us and seeing an object. And I think this happens in the church too. By the way, I couldn't believe when I came into the church how many T-shirts and yoga pants I saw. I was like, "Why are y'all girls not dressing like girls? Like, why are you afraid of your femininity?" But I think it's that when we when we're afraid of our when we're afraid of our femininity, when we've experienced trauma, when we've experienced shame, the easier thing to do is to turn off that thing that is female, to turn off that woman, right? To not be girly and and pretty and feminine in those ways, because it feels unsafe. And one of the the highest compliments I see to the work we're doing working is when these women feel safe enough to be feminine again. You know, I, I really believe that God made us male and female, feminine and masculine. And I know that's controversial in this world right now, and I don't say that to shame anyone who might be not feeling like their gender or you know whatever is going on, but, but I do feel like our gender is this beautiful invitation to softness. It's an invitation to lightness and nurturing. And when it's been exploited, we shut it off and we try to be hard and we try to be strong and we try to be masculine. I remember desperately wishing I was a boy because I thought boys weren't afraid. and. Wow. And that, that feeling carries into even our adult life sometimes. And so part of my journey was like allowing myself to be feminine again, allowing myself to be the girly girl I was before anyone took that from me. And so what I love about what we do with jewelry is that we're inviting women into that because all day long, they're making beautiful things and they're around, they're surrounded by, you know, our, our branding is all blush and, light and feminine and soft and our jewelry is dainty and feminine elegant and floral and you know and all these things that that they're uncomfortable with in the beginning but then slowly by slowly by slowly start to relax into and I can't even tell you like if I was to show you like before and after pictures of like like women's first days at sanctuary project and like last day at sanctuary project it's like night and day in terms of even just how they present themselves And I think some of that change starts to happen from the outside in too, where they start wearing beautiful things and they start feeling like a beautiful thing. And they start feeling their value as they're wearing valuable pieces of jewelry. And so it's such a sweet, sweet gift to see that happen for others the same way it happened for me.
0: This is so cool. I wonder if you could talk about maybe how you can tell warning signs. Like you said, you didn't look the part and as you're helping other women, and I'm sure there's all kinds of different Women and st- and like you know, obviously, we're all different humans, so that come into your ministry and what that looks like, but maybe how people could tell warning signs. And then also, you know, we have a lot of young women listening, how they could tell warning signs that that might be happening to them. You know, you said you had no mm-hmm. idea what you're walking into or being trafficked, but yeah, just warning signs that we might can look out for.
1: Yeah, to start with, if it might be happening to you, if you're a sex worker, I would question whether you have where whether you are in complete control of this choice to be doing this and all of your funds. So if you're working in the sex industry, if you're currently an escort or a stripper or you know, or have a pimp or anything, ask yourself if you are in control of all of your funds and if you could walk away today scot-free and no one would be upset about it. And if the answer to that is no, then feel free to reach out to me and we can process it together. In terms of warning signs for people from the outside... I think what people don't understand sometimes is that trafficking in and of itself is not a problem here in America. It's actually a symptom of other problems. And, you know, most in a hundred percent of the cases I have worked with of trafficked girls, there were other things going on that led to their trafficking. And, And let me just kind of explain that a little bit. So I have worked with in the sort of, you know, probably hundreds of girls I've worked with over the last 20 years who've been trafficked. I've known two that didn't have an addiction. And so I think, you know, that's a major, major red flag that there's more going on. And that's, it kind of is a which came first, the chicken or the egg thing. But if someone gets lost in addiction, ultimately, they're not going to have a lot of choices and traffickers are going to target them and exploit them. And if a target or if trafficker has targeted and and is exploiting someone, they're going to feed them drugs to keep them in their exploitation. And so if you know someone who's struggling with addiction, I would ask more questions. And because often it's easier to identify an addiction than it is to identify a trafficking situation. And that's part of the reason I made Sanctuary Project for survivors of trafficking, violence, and addiction. Because sometimes girls will come to me and they'll say, I'm, you know, I'm trying to recover from my addiction. I wasn't trafficked, but and I'm like, that's fine, come in and like, work with us. And then as we started to unpack and unravel their story, it's like, well, there's this boyfriend and I definitely have worked, you know, I definitely, he definitely sold me, but that's not trafficking. And then we can start to have more conversations. Right. And then the other thing to look for is violent relationships. And that's something that, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of like domestic violence organizations out there and they're not always identifying trafficking survivors. They're often identifying as domestic violence. But when you dig more into that story, there's further exploitation going on. Because traffickers will use violence as a tool. And so if there's someone who's identifying as being in a violent relationship, that's something to look at very, very closely as like is this relationship also sexually exploitive? Because I have seen those two go hand in hand far more than anyone would ever realize. That typically when someone is violent in a relationship, they're using it as a form of manipulation to get the person to, you know, perform something for money for them or to just sort of beat them into compliance, and you know, and I like to also say, you as like a normal like woman in your twenties, thirties, forties, you're a Christian. You go, you wake up, you go to, you drop your kids off at school, you come home. Like you're probably not going to come across girls who are being trapped. Like you know, I mean, that's it's not in your life. You may not be that that person that's going to identify it. You may come across them, but you may not be that person who's going to be able to identify it. Because, like I said about my story. No one around me would have been able to identify it, but healthcare workers would have been, the police would have been. And so I'm a huge advocate of getting healthcare workers and local law enforcement educated on what trafficking looks like so that they can be asking the right questions. You know, workers at abortion clinics need to know what questions to ask. And this is where, you know, the church is not going to intervene and be teaching abortion workers to ask the right questions, right? Because we're so anti-abortion that we won't even walk in there and educate them on questions they should be asking. But those are the people that
0: would have actually been able to identify that there was exploitation happening and that I wasn't safe. I like I'm getting teary eyed just thinking about that. Like if Jesus were walking the earth today, like if he knew how much you were broken and you said an abortion worker could possibly be the one to be like, Hey girl, we need to get you some help. Huh. Would he be the one to walk in the abortion? Pro- uh, when all the Pharisees wouldn't go, you know the abortion clinic and say, "Hey, yeah. I know, right?" And I, I just, if someone's listening out there and they're like skeptical of faith or religion, like I just want you to know that Christians get it wrong. We do. We get it wrong because mm-hmm. we are so flawedly human. But don't judge Jesus based on Christians. He he would be the one. I'm gonna cry, like <laughs> loving. And so I just I'm so thankful for your story and how you're just so authentic and genuine and giving other people tools on how to just make a beautiful life in the sanctuary project, even the name of it. And the, I've seen your branding and your website, all of it. And then the, the jewelry line, it all speaks to making beautiful things no matter what your past is.
1: Mm, thank you, <laughs> that's that means a lot to hear. And he is that that God that meets us in the depths of our sin and despair and pain and heartbreak. And so yeah, I just echo what you said. If you're listening and you don't know that Jesus, get to know that guy.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. Amen. One thing I want to touch on that I just, it just stood out to me. And I don't know if anyone's mentioned this, but you tell your story of your family and your parents, and it would be so easy walking through what you walk walked through. Well, my parents did this, or they didn't do that and blame and whatever. And you tell your story with such respect for what they did, right? Which I love. Mm -hmm. And also just sharing your story. I'm sure there are people who have walked through a quote, less than perfect past and have just pushed that under the rug. Gonna live my life, you know, in the suburbs and not say anything about it. I bet there's a lot to unpack there. Like, how did you first start telling your story, and as it relates to your parents and stuff? I think that that's a really, really brave thing, and also you've just been very respectful, and I think that that's really powerful.
1: Thank you for saying that. It it actually has taken some work and intention, and it's such a good question because I think when I first did start telling my story, there was a lot of blame. I blamed everybody. I definitely blamed my parents. Oh my gosh, and they were not perfect, and they know that, and you know. I could unpack everything they did wrong, but two things. One, they were human. They were human and they were doing the best they could in a really, really hard situation. And the Lord has gifted me with such compassion for them over the years of just like, man, that's hard. That's hard. I didn't have a daughter until I was 39. And then when I, you know, I'm, and I now feel very equipped to be a mother, my mom was like twenty five or something when she became a mom, and she had three kids, and I'm like, "Holy moly, me at twenty five trying to have kids, like, what a mess. What a mess that would have been!" And then to have a kid like me who was struggling with trauma they didn't know about and had a rebellious spirit from a very young age and, and that they you know they didn't know, they didn't know what to do, and I just have a lot of compassion. But the other thing that you know i I also have had a lot of blame I have. You know, I I am an adult child of an alcoholic. My father is an alcoholic, and and I have blamed that. My mother, you know, there it was not healthy. That relationship was not healthy. But I think you know what what started to happen when I when I started to we talked about like getting prepared to start sharing my story publicly, and part of that was a lot of writing for me. And when I was writing, I remember like kind of writing some of that into my story. And as I was doing that. I felt this overwhelming conviction that I know was from God, where he said, I need you to honor your mother and father, honor your Mm -hmm. mother and father. This is one of my 10 commandments. And I need you to take this seriously because it's so easy to be like, my parents messed up and then I got messed up. Right. Yeah. It's an easy story to tell. The harder story to tell is how am I responsible for what happened to me? And how is sin responsible? Right. Like this, you know, just, big capital S sin, because that's the actual problem. We don't battle flesh and blood. We battle spirits and principalities and, and, you know, a world that's full of sin. That's the actual problem, not my parents. Right. And so as I was challenged to honor them in this telling of my story, as I was challenged to honor them in the writing of my story, in my book, I had to start to reframe my own experience around sin being the problem and not my parents being the problem. And around trauma being the problem and not the trauma they inflicted on being the problem, right? And when I did that, all different levels of forgiveness started to open up in me because I realized that they weren't the problem, you know, like, like I was going to be hurt by this world, whether they were perfect or not. I know some really good parents and their children have still ended up hurt by the world, you know, because capital S sin and capital T trauma happens. And so I think it's a I think it's a challenge that I would invite anyone into really of saying, yeah, you probably had bad parents. I bet your parents sucked. Most do, you know? Yeah. I bet all suck. <laughs> I bet Katie sucks, you know? We all suck yeah. at parenting. And we're going to mess up our kids in really individual ways. Like I spoil the heck out of mine and I definitely smother her with like all my love and affection and put all my hopes and dreams on her. That's going to mess her up. It's going to mess her up different than I was messed up, but I also just want to challenge anyone listening that in that challenge to honor your mother and father, which is this biblical commandment, there's an opportunity to look at the world differently, to look at them with compassion, to look at your own hurts differently and actually take responsibility for them instead of staying a
0: victim to them. I love that so much because I remember being in a small group one time and every single person, my parents, this, my parents, that. And it's, it's back to kind of that, you know, the story of the mom and the locking the kids out. Yeah, One kid saw this beautiful, wonderful mother with cute, creative snacks. And one person was like, my mama this, my mama that. So yeah. I'm I'm just really proud of you. I think that that's the the higher road. And I think that it's, it was healing for you as well. Like you said, you know, realizing and unpacking the good. And I, I just love that. I think it's so beautiful. There's good in that
1: commandment. You know, I think we forget that like God's commandments were given to us for our good. You know, we tend to look at them as like, Oh, these are just rules that we have to obey. And, like, we're not legalistic. We don't live there anymore. Well, let's look at the original spirit of the law. Like, why did God reveal the law? He revealed it for our good. He says, Thou shalt not kill for our own good because it's going to harm our souls. He says, Thou shalt not commit adultery for our own good because it's going to harm our souls. Like, he says, Honor your mother and father for our own good because it harms our souls to hold on to resentments from the people who worked us and brought us into this world and are ultimately our biggest stability network in this world, whether they're good or bad or perfect or imperfect, they're, they're our parents and, you know, and they are going to be our greatest stability. So if we can live in forgiveness and live in honor, despite
0: their flaws, it's a gift to us truly. Oh my gosh. I love this so much. I feel like I've been on a journey with that my own self recently. And I think that everything you're saying is so true and so relatable. And as you said, taking time in a few years to like, This was my wounds, and now this is my scars. Your story is some from such a healthy place, and I'm over here being your biggest fan, sister.
1: You're so sweet. Well, same, I feel the same way about you and all you're doing, and and the ways you're helping to equip those who are coming up underneath
0: us into this world. Well, tell everyone how they can get in touch with all of the awesomeness that you are bringing into the world.
1: Yes, um, so you can find me at hollychristinehays.com, and there you'll find links to my podcast, Finding Sanctuary. You'll find links to Sanctuary Project. And then you can also visit sanctuaryproject.com to shop online, to learn about our mission, find ways to support whether it's sponsoring a survivor or buying our jewelry, which I mean, that's probably a good way to support our work by wearing pretty things and, and then telling our story to everyone who gives you compliments on your pretty jewelry.
0: Yes, you change the world by the dollars you spend. So supporting your, what you have going on over there would be an amazing way to help change the world. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I will link all of this in the show notes so you can easily just scroll up from this episode and click on what she has going on. But Holly, thank you so much for being here. I really just could not say more about how you answered every question so beautifully. And I'm just so thankful to share this episode with our listeners. Well, it's such an honor to be with you. Thank you for having me, Katie. I'm over here giving you a virtual hug because you just finished another episode of The Truth for Your 20s podcast. Would you help a sister out and take a screenshot right wherever you're listening and share it on your social? Give me a tag at Katie Life so I can give you a big thank you. You sharing it, you leaving your reviews on iTunes is the best possible compliment you can give. Hey, let's continue to hang out. We have a private community called Truth For Your Twenties over on Facebook. So just go to groups, search Truth For Your Twenties and come join the party.